you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. What does it feel like to patrol the demilitarized zone near North Korea? And what does it feel like to take a projectile in the chest in Iraq? Is leadership really the same across all organizational structures? Join us today to hear from an excellent leader retired from active military service in Iraq, Afghanistan, Korea, and most recently, West Point. One time they showed us this video shot from the southern border but of a, of a northern North Korean guard post, and they released a Siberian tiger, supposedly, and it was on the video. It was, that was a real, that was a real tiger. And we still had to go out there, we were like, holy cow. So we went out there, we didn't encounter it, but I don't know what happened, maybe it stepped on the mine, but I mean, that was just, it was really surreal, like, you know, dealing with, you know, with, sometimes you hear this blasting of rock music and propaganda, next thing you know, you're dealing with a tiger. This is the podcast where we discuss leadership and innovation for teenagers. I can't wait to introduce today's guest. We've been counting the days until Jonathan retired from his position at West Point so we could interview him for our show. While in active military service, he wasn't allowed to speak publicly about his experiences and having previous experience as a researcher in civil service with the Navy myself, I understand why the military has such strict policies. So why should we be interested in the opinions of a retired military officer? I have asked myself that question having been in the bureaucracy of the Navy and eventually leaving because my free entrepreneurial spirit could not be reconciled to the long-term service as a civil servant. So why would I interview a retired military officer for our podcast? To be honest, there are still aspects of the military that call to my heart such as the Navy SEALs training in San Diego. The discipline and serving for a higher cause still calls to the heart of every red-blooded patriotic American, regardless of your beliefs about the current politics. The U.S. is still the leader in innovation worldwide, specifically because we're so free-thinking. But free-thinking requires solid, robust protection. Many brave Americans pledge their lives and relinquish some of their freedoms of choice to protect the ideals upon which our free-thinking is built. I also believe that strong innovators must believe in the future and their innovation with the same discipline that a soldier holds to the commands and structures put into place by an honor-bound military. So I had to interview Jonathan Silk to learn more about his philosophy of leadership. You'll find Jonathan's story and perspectives irresistible. Join me today as I interview an American hero. So my guest today is Jonathan Silk. Jonathan is a new veteran from the military. He describes himself as a lifelong learner, and he's particularly interested now that he's getting out of the military and helping veterans transition back into their communities. He served in the Army continuously for 28 years, and while there, he, he got an undergraduate degree in business administration and two graduate degrees, an MBA from UT Dallas and an MA, Master of Arts in Education, from Pepperdine. 
He's an Iraq veteran. I think we'll ask him about a story about that. He's also toured Afghanistan and most recently uh, has been an assistant professor at West Point. So, Jonathan, tell us a little bit more about how you had all those experiences. Uh, well, initially I enlisted in the Army right out of high school. I told my parents that it's one of the three-year breaks between high school and college and absolutely loved it and decided to make it a career. Along the way, I had leadership opportunities of a career, uh, uh, positions of increased responsibility, and I was selected to go to officer candidate school. I became a commissioned officer, and then I deployed to Iraq. In Iraq, sometimes it was a pretty intense experience. I was wounded in Iraq. A very long story short, I got during a big, pretty big firefight in Al-Qut, Iraq, and I was leading an attack on an enemy-held bridge, and I took a hit to the chest, actually several hits to the chest, I had my body armor on, and the projectile I got hit with did not explode. But with the concussion, the impact from it tore my mitral valve in my heart. That was not immediately... Yeah, yeah. I'm going to try and keep this short, and feel free to ask me any more questions. So I recovered from from that hit and stayed in the fight, and then we stayed deployed another about three and a half months. Once we got back to the States, and in hindsight, I had all the symptoms of injury I'm about to describe... Um, as we started getting regular, more into our regular physical fitness routine, I had a lot of problems running. One thing led to another, and I ended up at a cardiologist, and they did an echogram in my heart, and came to me and said, did you take any trauma to the chest in Iraq? Because I didn't, when I got hit, I had my body armor on, stopped it from penetrating. And uh, I said, yes, I told them the story. The impact from what I got hit with, um, it tore my mitral valve. So my heart was, uh, there's a medical term called uh, mitral valve prolapse. So my heart was basically, when it pumped, 60% of the blood would go out and would fall out into the bloodstream and 40% would stay in the chamber. So I had 40% leakage. I had to have surgery. We were going to repair it. And then during the surgery, the damage was too extensive. So they replaced it. And so when I came, you know, woke up from surgery, I found out I had a, now I have a carbon fiber heart valve. Yeah. Wow. So... I recovered. I kept trying to keep it short, but I, you know, some dark spots for a while. But uh, eventually, with the help of family and friends, I recovered and was got back in shape. And I uh, was retained on active duty. I was determined to stay in. But eventually, just a few years later, at Pepperdine, I started a blog called "I Kick When I Run." Because when I when I run and exercise now, you can hear me. It's the uh, my mitral valve opening and closing. <laughs> <laughs> So I pick when I run dot com. If you go to that blog site, you'll see the uh, the latest blog. It was written a little, it was written a few months ago on the ten year anniversary of my surgery. My surgery cost roughly three hundred thousand dollars, so I titled it the three hundred thousand dollar man. That's <laughs> <laughs> Better deal than the uh, the other version. <laughs> wow. So I worked in the Navy a little bit, but I've never been on active duty. How did you make the transition? I mean, you said you went to officer training program. Is that a common path for someone who um, enlists young like you did? No, it's not that common. I, I was really uh, had some great leaders that uh, invested a lot of time and energy in my development. And at one point, I was a, a non-commissioned officer in the Army, and, so, and I was serving in a, in a role of uh, like the advisor to the, the lieutenant who was a commissioned officer. And we were in this big training center in Fort Polk, Louisiana, and this was training. He got, um, you know, we had the Miles gear on. It's like laser warfare. And he got assessed as a casualty, so I stepped into his position and led this big operation we were conducting. 
I led the whole thing and was successful. We had about half the whole unit soldiers attached to us. So I had this incredible experience. I was successful in the mission, and I was like, wow, I love this. I'll never get to do this if I stay enlisted. My commander also said, hey, great job. You should consider becoming an officer. So I just took him up on that. Um, I earned enough college credits to not get my undergrad to go to officer camp school. But that, that was the pass for that. I had no child love being uh, enlisted, but once I had that experience, I was like, I want to be an officer because those are the types of experiences I want to have. So again, for our listeners, not knowing a lot about maybe the life of an officer, after you went through this experience, what, what was it like being an officer in the military? And I guess I don't know specifically, we haven't asked anything about uh, rank and service. Like, wh- where did you serve other than uh, you mentioned you served in Iraq? I mean, have you been all over the place in different duty stations or primarily in certain regions of the country? Oh, yes. So first for duty stations, when I was enlisted, I served in, uh, initially in the Army Honor Guard in Washington, D.C. We did a lot of ceremonies around Arlington Cemetery. I was stationed in Alaska for four years, and I went to Hawaii for three years to thaw out. <laughs> and, then I, <laughs> and that's where I had that really good experience I just talked about. So after Hawaii, I went to Louisiana, and I was a senior enlisted advisor for Louisiana National Guard. I helped them advise them on training maintain standards. That's where I had a lot of time for college. Officer Tan School was at Fort Benning in Georgia. And after I graduated and was commissioned, we went to Kentucky, Fort Knox in Kentucky for some training. Then I ended up getting uh, sent back to Fort Polk, Louisiana. And then I deployed to Iraq. Once I came back from Iraq, uh, you know, had surgery, recovered. And at the same time, I did my undergrad, finished my undergrad while I was recovered from surgery, LSU. Then I, I got retained on active duty, went, I got promoted to captain. Then I went back to Fort Knox. I was an armor officer. And the uh, armor officers at the time went to Fort Knox for their different leadership training, this required course. So after at, at Fort Knox, I found out I was going to Korea. I had been in Korea when I was enlisted as well, I forgot to mention. But anyway, I was going to Korea, went to Korea. I commanded a tank company over there about at Camp Casey, which is about 12 miles south of the border of North Korea. I was there for about 18 months. Uh, incredible experience. You know, some South Korean soldiers attached to me. So it's like we're like a multinational corporation. So a lot of good training. We were there as a deterrent to the North Koreans, but uh, we had a lot of good experiences. What were the years that you were there just south of the border there and from North Korea? In command, 2007 to 2008. So were, were things, I, I'm trying to think back in my history here, when when the North Koreans really started flexing their muscles recently, or at least when it started hitting the news. It, was, it seems like it's been about five or seven years. Was, were they starting to do that then when you were there, or have they always been doing that? They've always been doing that. The first time I was in Korea was in 1990 to 91. And then well, we were patrolling the border in the unit I was in. And it was pretty crazy because... Uh, there's no flying, so we, we only could drive or walk in. You couldn't have aircraft flying in the, the militarized zone. Well, the minute the South North Koreans heard any kind of vehicle movement or thought they saw, saw some kind of foot movement, they would turn on their loudspeakers and start propaganda. And then the South Koreans would counter that to drown it out. They would play rock and roll, and no kidding, he's like, listen to Judas Priest out there while you're... <laughs> That's a name I haven't heard in a long time. That, that that brings back some stuff from high school. Wow. <laughs> you got another thing coming was I heard that up on, uh, on the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. So that was the kind of things that was going on at that point in time. Fast forward to my last time I was there, 
they had come to some kind of agreement where they wouldn't do the blast propaganda back and forth. But North Korea was always very provocative. Right before I'd gone over there, I think, is when they first tested their first nuclear weapon. Things were always tense. But that was kind of normal over there. So I mean, we knew we, we had our mission and we had a, you know, if something happened, we knew what we, what we were going to be doing. But you just live with that. Well, here's a good example. If you went to Seoul, Korea, which is 40 miles south of the border, very modern city, you would never know you're 40 miles away from North Korea. They, um, they just live with that. So Seoul, Korea is a great place. As you were talking about that, Ed, I was just curious, what, what's it like being in that environment? I mean, did you have long uh, tours there uh, near the border, or was it broken up every couple of weeks? You know, what, what's it like being that close? And is it something that the whole company feels the stress all the time, or what's it like being in that environment all the time? I'll talk about the first time I was there, because the second time I was there, in that span of time, the South Korean forces had taken over right on the, all the patrolling on the border, and American forces were just south of it. But when the first time I was there, we went up to the border for three months at a time, and we'd go through these patrol cycles. And when you were patrolling, it was a real deal. You, during the day, we went out on a day patrol, kind of a reconnaissance. And the North Koreans were always trying to send, uh, you know, infiltrate their special operations forces across the border to conduct some kind of espionage operations in South Korea. So at night, we'd go out in ambush and wait and trying to, you know, along suspected infiltration routes. You know, that would wear you down. It was pretty intense doing that. And here's one example of what the North Koreans did. And this is before GPS, by the way. GPS wasn't standard in the military. So when you navigated, you had your compass in your map. So a lot of people, if anyone gets out of the military and is listening to this, will say, hey, that's old school. Because <laughs> we still always have to learn how to use that, but now everything is done on GPS. So there's minefields. The demilitarized zone is heavily mined, and monsoon season was in the summer when we are up there. So minefields shift in the rain and the, the sliding mud is, pretty crazy. That's what really made it tense. Um, there was a little bit of enemy activity, but it was just dealing with that. The maps where the minefields were laid out, you didn't know if they had shifted or not. I mean, going by compass at night. But anyway, so one time, we always got a brief before we went on a patrol, and uh, one time they showed us this video shot from the southern border but of, a, of a northern North Korean guard post, and they released a Siberian tiger, supposedly, and it was on the video. It was, that was a real, that was a real tiger. And we still had to go out there. We're like, holy cow. <laughs> nice. So we went out there. We didn't encounter it. But I don't know what happened. To it. Maybe it stepped on the mine. But, I mean, that was just it was really surreal. Like, you know, dealing with, you know, sometimes you hear this blasting of rock music and propaganda. Next thing you know, you're dealing with a tiger. Um, <laughs> so It sounds like such a mind games. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it, it was. On the second time I was there, though, we the South Korean Army is a lot more capable. And so they had control over the exact border area, and we were just south of there. So just comparing the two experiences, a lot more relaxed. But you did know if hostilities commenced again on the peninsula that, you know, we were going to be involved in that. So let's wind back the clock quite a ways then. Um, I'm <laughs> curious how you got into leadership and where, where that came from. If it's okay with you, I'd like to go all the way back to, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school. What was it like for you coming through school? I mean, did you find yourself being kind of the, a, a de facto leader among your friends? Um, was this a, a later development? Uh, wh- where did that love of that come from, do you know? I think it was more of a later development. I mean, it was a development in high school, probably. I played a lot of sports. I wasn't really great at sports, but I understand the power of a team working together. But I was fascinated with the military, and I had a really good relationship with my grandfather. He was an officer in World War II. 
they always share their stories with me. So that, that kind of fascinated me. And so then I, you know, I wanted to go in the military. I was a pretty big World War II buff in high school reading stories and stuff. So as well as talking to my grandfather, like I just mentioned. I, know, I got in the military. Then um, after about two years, I had my first leadership position, was just being in, called a fire team leader, where I had some responsibility and was in charge of supervising soldiers. And I, I really loved it. And then when we go out, and I was an infantryman when I was enlisted. So we go out to the field to do training, and then you're in charge of maneuvering them. And it's like playing chess. This is my opinion, my perspective. <laughs> so, but when you're maneuvering, in training, if you're maneuvering against somebody else, you're trying, really trying to you know, outsmart them. And, and it's really it's challenging. So I love that challenge. And then, you know, things are never the same. In the middle, you know, you're always encountering different situations. But really the leadership and then the one-on-one interaction with the soldiers who are subordinate to you, your direct reports, and helping develop them and seeing them improve, that's really what got that's that you know that, that's what fired me up about being leadership, and then um, and so I continued my development. You know, others leaders higher than me would you know invest in their time in me, and then in turn I developed my, my subordinates. So kind of like a generational leadership approach. And then I explained that training exercise I had earlier, where I was in charge of the whole operation, and I absolutely loved that. I was like I thrived in that environment. I felt really good. I was. It was challenging to me. I was confident. I knew what to do. And it was just challenging. Like I said, it was the challenge of being given a, an objective, you get to come up with a plan. You're, yes, you're receiving an order. There's a lot of misconceptions. I think stereotypes of the Army is we just, or in the military, you, you take orders and give orders. Yes, you receive a mission order, but it's up to you as the leader to use your creativity and show in your, in your confidence to come up with a plan that will accomplish that mission, whatever it is. And I love that. And then you have to influence others to, yes, you can give an order and they're going to follow it, but if you don't have respect, you don't have good relationships, then the people working for you are not going to give you 100%. They might give you 50%. So there's a whole lead, the leadership part of it, the social capital part of leadership, influencing others. And everybody's different. You and me could have one relationship and then the next person over is a different person. It's just challenging. You have to understand how to influence others. You can't have a blanket leadership style. And so talking about everything I talked about really fascinated me. So I just wanted more of that. I wanted to experience as much as I could. You know, then I decided to become, a, you know, I wanted to become an officer. Being a lieutenant was great. I had, uh, rather than being wounded, but, uh, but in Iraq was great. The amount of, we do these missions, these long-range patrols a long way away from our commander. And you were totally in charge, I was totally uh, in charge of that. And I absolutely loved that. And then throw in the, the, the risk of the enemy activity. And I, I go back to the, uh, I don't want to compare it to a chess game because chess games you don't usually get wounded. But, <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I, I thrived in that type of environment is the best way to describe that. And then company commander, the next level up. You're like the CEO of a small company. You own that organization. And I absolutely loved that. I had a, like in Korea, I had a company of about 112 soldiers between 112 and 120. I had South Korean soldiers attached to me. And the job was to, you know, train them and be ready to accomplish our mission. And there's so many different lines of effort applied to that. There's training so all the, all the, all the soldiers are competent in their job. There's a logistics piece of it. Make, we had big tanks, and tanks require a lot of maintenance. So logistically, we had to run that and make sure we're at an operational readiness rate of right around 98, 99%. And 
it was just really, I love that challenge. So as I've developed and matured as a leader, I just love the challenges of increased responsibility. And once again, I love the development of parts. If you can develop somebody, even if they don't, like I had plenty of soldiers that decided not to stay in the Army, but they went on to go to college. It's just that developmental piece. I'm trying to look for the word for it, but if you develop somebody and they grow into something better, they have that moment of self-discovery and realize what they want to do and they're growing and development um, on their own terms. That's powerful. And that's what leadership is in the developmental piece. There are so many different directions that I just want to take this conversation. I know I don't have time to ask them all, but I think I'd like to come back to the social capital and your leadership style. Is this common in the other leaders that you spent time with in the military to really try hard to develop that social capital so that you can get 100%? Is that common? I think it is fairly common. I think people understand that. But just because you're in a leadership position doesn't make you an expert in leadership. And if we want to talk about leadership development versus leader development. So leader development is any activity that you or me go that we improve ourselves. That's the human capital. So you or me go and we get our undergrad degree, we go take this training program. We're, we're improving the human capital. Leadership is the other side of that. That's the social capital, how your interpersonal skills, how you influence others, how you build relationships. Emotional intelligence is tied into that. I mean, you have to be good at your job, but when you're in a leadership position, you shouldn't be doing the job. You should be, I think, directing it. And that's the key piece is developing that and having that understanding of yourself and others because not everybody's the same. And you you, you have to understand that in order to motivate people to do things. Uh, I like the word influence. I don't like the term motivate. Or inspire. Inspire is the best word, I think. Because if you inspire somebody, that's futile. That'll last forever. I'm partial um, to that word. Yeah. <laughs> so I think a lot of officers and leaders in the Army realize that at different points in their career. So when I was commissioned as an officer, I was I was a more mature soldier because I had been enlisted for a while. So I think developmental-wise, I was a little ahead of my peers in that. I just feel like not every captain who's a commander will think they're the CEO of an organization. That Sometimes it takes people a little while to realize that. I knew that from my enlisted days. I mean, I, I came to that realization, like, I'm the CEO. This is my organization. It's, instead of it's a company making money, you're, you're a company that's training to fight wars. <laughs> so I, I'm curious, again, thinking back, because part of what we're interested in is how did you get where you are? Looking back, were you a strategic thinker growing up? Was that something that you always liked? Like, did you like strategy games? You know, did you like engaging in activities that caused you to have to uh, think carefully and strategically, maybe in... Uh, uh, school or other activities growing up? Yeah, I think I did. I guess I tend, I am a strategic thinker. I think I'm a very creative thinker. If you and I were talking about something, I could quickly take an idea as to how I think and say, all right, in three years we could be doing this with it. I kind of like write brainish in that way. So in school, I guess, yeah, I did like things like that. I loved uh, games that would challenge, like strategy games. I was very into, once again, uh, uh, World War II, so I remember the early computer games. I'm trying to remember the name of this game I had. It was actually, it was like a World War III game where we were fighting the Russians all over the world. But um, <laughs> I love the adventure. There's some adventure. Uh, World of Warcraft wasn't out yet. There's some other games that were like that that I loved where you had to really plan and develop your characters. I can't remember the name of them. But I did like games like that. And I love, but when strat- I think when strategy is tied to creativity is where I thrive. So, like, going back to being a commander or being, if you say, hey, Jonathan, this is your mission, you know, you're now in charge, 
this is your organization, you have it for the next 10, 18 months, I am naturally going to think out what do I want to be in 18 months and create the plan that will help develop and uh, grow the organization to that level where I want to be. So I, I naturally think that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, and, and I like what you said about when strategy uh, requires the creativity that, that that's where you thrive because I, I get the feeling that, that some of the greatest leaders out there, you know, like you're talking about feeling like you're a CEO of an organization. I mean, whether it's in military or in uh, the civilian side, you know, just looking at the, the people who have made some really huge changes in how we think about things, uh, Steve Jobs, for instance. I mean, certainly he brought a lot of creativity, but he was definitely a strategic thinker. You know, he was able to do some amazing things with some of the companies that he was involved with. So let me ask you another question. Do you think that is common among leaders? My answer to this is, yes, it can be. But if there isn't a common trait in leaders, it can be developed. And I'm a big fan of building teams based on cognitive diversity. I'm really going to oversimplify this concept, but I'm going to use the terms right brain and left brain. And no one is purely left brain or right brain. There's a you know, use all four quadrants. To anyone listening to this, I'm not <laughs> being left and the right brain is kind of a mess. So I don't want to. People think differently, and as I mentioned before, I think, and I've done um, in my studies for coaching, I went through a number of assessments that measure whole brain thinking preferences. And when I took this, it created such self-awareness. It really explained to me why, like, why I could suddenly, like, you and I could be talking, and you'll say an idea, and I'll say, hey, that's great. And then I'll be five steps in front of you naturally, and I might then I might lose you just because you, you're not thinking that way. Some people think more step by step by step. When you're more aware of that, then I think that can be developed. So if you're somebody who's more on the left brain side, and once again I'm oversimplifying that term to anyone listening, <laughs> but you can then once you have that awareness, then you can say, all right, one of my learning objectives is I need to think more creatively or more strategically. Then you can work with that once you have that knowledge and that data, you can do a learning agenda. I think naturally, I don't think in the military we don't do a, a really good job of making leaders aware of where they, you know, what their thinking preferences and where they do best and what, what areas they need to be developed in that aspect. So I, I mean, know that was kind of a long think, answer. Do you think we do a better job in the civilian sector or do you think that's just true across all situations in leadership? I've read some stuff through my coaching studies, and then there's this great article on HBR, and I can send it to you if you want me. It's on the fashion industry. It was from 2009. It's like Innovation in Turbulent Times. And it talks about how the fashion industry matched up their innovation teams with, and once again, oversimplifying the term, but with left-brainers and right-brainers. Right-brain people that were incredibly creative and could come up with these amazing ideas. But if you put too many creative people in a room together, they're going to have great ideas and they're not going to get anything accomplished. <laughs> so they have people, so realizing that, they, they paired the team. So more um, left-brain-type people who weren't incredibly creative but were very good at the business processes, putting those building teams that way um, really sparked innovation and, and that was able to be scaled into you know profitable business products. And so I think some, some organizations get it and some don't. I think it's really what they value, you know, how they value their development and what they're trying to do. But I think if you want to do it, if, if and if you want to be innovative, you have to recognize the power of diversity, all different forms of diversity. There's, you know, you know, ethnic, or racial, gender, because everyone has different experiences, which is powerful when you combine them all into a team to leverage it. But also cognitive diversity, how people think. Because that can 
create some great ideas and then uh, spark innovation. It's obvious that you and I, we both think very similarly like that. So there's all these (laughs) leaps happening as we're going along in the conversation. And I'd like to turn it and wind down with our last couple of questions. And I I think we've got about three more conversations in us here. But And I'd like to combine the last two questions. We think a lot about education on our podcast. And as we wind down the podcast, we always consider two things. You know, what is education? What is the context of education in the digital age? Like how do we think about that term educating? And also, what's the purpose of an education? And so maybe what I'll do is just, you know, since you've had time to think about this a lot, what's your perspective on education, where we are? What would you say to parents and teenagers about how they should think about their education? I think the purpose of an education is to equip learners with the tools on the self-discovery, where they they can go out there and think critically, analyze things, think for themselves, know how to think and learn and be inspired by that and become lifelong learners. And learn in a way that's good for them so they enjoy learning and continue to grow and develop and are always looking to whatever whatever direction they choose. I think that's the purpose of an education is to equip, starting with kids at a very young age, the ability to do that. The purpose of education is to inspire young minds to grow and do great things. And recognizing that everyone's not the same we need to understand that, and I think, and then, you know, individualize some education. So every, every person has an opportunity to do that. Digitally, to be educated in the digital age, I don't want to say the wrong thing here. I love technology. <laughs> and I'm more peppered on it. I thrived in that, in that environment. I love the, the learning technology environment. And I'm looking forward to bringing that into my next position. I used it at West Point, too, but a little constrained in the Army, you know, just with resources. But... Once again, the same purpose of education, but it's with digital tools and technology, it can really enhance education. There's so much information out there. Technology can never replace a good teacher, but it can really enhance it. And that can just develop some a young mind and really inspire them to such incredible levels that I never had when, when I was growing up. I had an Apple uh, with the Apple II. <laughs> <laughs> so I just think that's how education in the digital age is just this incredible level of inspiration. And well, we have the ability, if you're educated in the digital age, to to individualize programs so everyone can be, you, no one gets, I don't like to use this term, but no one has to be left behind with digital education. You can inspire every every kid and they can have their own learning path to develop and grow at their own pace almost and wow. be, become lifelong learners. Well, that's a mouthful, and I think it is. Uh, I think it's powerful. I think we'll just wrap it right there uh, for the interview. Okay. Um, thank you so much, Jonathan, for taking some time to pull the curtain back a little bit on you know what does a well-lived military career actually look like. And thank you so much for sharing that uh, with us, with our audience today. Oh no, problem. it was my pleasure. I, I could go on so, for hours. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no. I, like I said, I think you and I have two or three more interviews in us here. But uh, okay. what's the best way for our audience to get in touch with you uh, if they're interested in learning more, asking you some questions? Um, so I'm on, on Twitter. They can find me at Frontline Leader, but it's I have to spell it out for you. It's not. It's uh, it's Frontline and LDR. Or they can uh, email me. The email address I gave you is at jsilk1969 at gmail dot com. I can give you my Twitter address as well. You know, I'm on Facebook as well. I'm a big fan of social media used for educational purposes. And by that, I don't mean like showing you, you know, everything I'm eating today. I mean like 
using social media to start conversa learning conversations and sharing educational content. <laughs> oh, you, and, you and Debbie see not die on that, for sure. Yeah. Well, 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 we'll link all of those up in the show notes so that okay. uh, our listeners can get all of you the Facebook and the Twitter and the email. Although probably the email will just uh, will leave here on audio so you don't get a lot of spam. But uh, if they listen to okay. it, get it, we'll make sure they can get that. But thank you so much, Jonathan, for taking some time to talk to our audience. Oh, no problem. Thank you. I really enjoyed it and look forward to our next conversation. Did you enjoy our discussion with Jonathan? I love his candid yet insightful views on leadership. And if you know any students interested in honing their leadership skills in the context of technology, send me an email at stevecurdy at ttinvent.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-K-U-R-T-I at T-T-I-N-V-E-N-T dot com and mention R-I-F. I can't see too much, but we're hatching some great plans for 2016. Be sure to subscribe to the TTI podcast so you don't miss great upcoming episodes. Also, to find out more about inventor camps, after-school programs, training opportunities, and our premium innovation fellowship program for high school students, visit inventingzone.com. Don't worry about the future. Sign up, and we'll help you create it.